So again, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, again, a pleasure to be here at this in this uh, beautiful location. Can be very inspiring to uh, connect with the hills and the uh, trees and the deer and the turkeys and so forth. Up until about a, a maybe a little less than two years ago, connected with this Wednesday morning gathering, we would have um, once a month, we'd invite people to come. Initially it was at 7, then later it got pushed back to 8 a.m. We'd invite people to come for monthly for the renewal of the ethical precepts. And for different reasons, we ended that practice uh, almost two years ago. But um, I've wanted periodically, and I think Sylvia has the same intention, to give attention uh, in a focused way to our ethical practice. That's what I want to do today. I want to talk generally about ethical, our ethical practice, but in particularly focus on the first precept, which is the precept of non-harming. And I think there are a lot of reasons to do this. It's a very significant part of our practice, but yet in the West, there's been this strong pull to meditation. And sometimes we neglect our ethical practice, or we, we might think, I'm basically ethical. You know, I don't harm people in any obvious way. I, I try to speak truthfully. I live an ethical life. Uh, my cutting edge is more with meditation, isn't it? You know, and I think that's a, a widespread sentiment in the Western approach to, to spiritual practice. And, and yet there's um, something actually very deep that we don't always appreciate about ethical practice, or it's real, ethics is a translation of sila. It's not a, not a great translation. We could, we could speak of living a life of integrity. Um, words that are usually often used to translate sila include ethics and morality. Those all in the West can sometimes be loaded, you know, especially morality. Morality can have connotations of um, uptight and repressive uh, authoritarian systems of telling us what to do, right? And we can have those, that morality sometimes has that, con that connotation, the term. Um, and yet it's a very fundamental part of our practice, the aspiration, for example, uh, not to harm, which I want to focus on today. Um, when we bring it to the uh, micro-moments of our experience and to the different ways that we see what's going on in our own consciousness, our own moment-to-moment -moment experience, it actually is a very deep practice. And the, the aspiration, for example, to live a life of integrity in which we don't harm either others or ourselves and to live that way, to have that be the uh, North Star in a way, I think is just as deep a vision as we might have with some of the more inner aspects of practice, to aspire towards a mind and a heart that's filled with love and wisdom, for example, or to really have that quality of presence. Um, in fact, they're very interrelated. 
And so what I want to do is to talk some generally about ethical practice and to particularly focus on uh, the first precept, which is that of non-harming, talk about it uh, as a understanding, as a guide of how to live, talk about some of the subtleties of it, and point to how we might practice. My hope is that, as I often like to do, you will like to focus on this, you will want to focus on this in the next week in different ways. And that we will come back, compare notes, and that we can have a focus <coughs> for daily practice. So I'll, uh, the last part, I'll give some suggestions on how we practice uh, with this first precept particularly. And at the end, I'd like us to, if, if you wish, to, uh, in a formal way, much as we did for many, many years, in a formal way, take the ethical precepts together. So I'll leave some, I'll leave some time at the end for that. Traditionally, there are three main forms of training three main forms of spiritual training, and they are divided into sila, sila, samadhi, and panya, or we would, we would translate into ethics, meditation, and wisdom. It's often thought that there's a threefold training. As I mentioned, we often focus more on the meditation, not even always so much on the wisdom in the West. We don't have always that integrated sense that would be there in the Asian context. Uh, so ethics has to do particularly with the way we live. It has a lot to do with how we live with others, uh, being in community. Meditation can take many, many forms, whether the loving-kindness meditation, the mindfulness meditation, um, all sorts of other meditations that maybe cultivate wisdom more. And then the wisdom might at times involve more study, understanding, of the core principles, could be listening to the teachings, maybe doing some reading, and all of these ultimately are integrated. In the monastic context, traditionally, the monks and nuns took over 200 precepts. Most of them had to do with the sort of very small details of daily life. Uh, for lay people, there are the so-called five lay precepts, which are the ones that we work with the most, which can really help guide us in our daily lives. And these are the precepts uh, not to harm, the precept not to take that which is not given, which we, we could talk about it in terms of uh, not stealing. The third is the precept to be careful with sexuality. Uh, in certain contexts, that would mean um, celibacy. The fourth is about uh, wise speech and skillful speech. And the fifth is about care with, with substances which shift consciousness. Uh, and I want to focus particularly on the quality of non-harming today, as I mentioned. And so what, what, are the, what is really the purpose of the ethical precepts? It's to live a life of integrity uh, from the Buddha. One who is virtuous and wise shines forth like a blazing fire. 
We can think of people we know, could include ourselves, <laughs> who, who seem to live lives of integrity, you know, and that we can, they're people that we can trust, we feel safe, safe with. Maybe we sometimes feel intimidated by a little bit or we can project on that they're judging us. That can, you know, they're not always easy to be around, these people with integrity, right? Uh, I remember reading the, uh, a book about the Jewish prophets by Abraham Joshua Heschel. He said that the prophets were some of the most difficult people that could be in our lives. <laughs> you know? And, and that, can, that can be the case. Uh, following the ethical precepts, in a way, gives us a sense of uh, refuge and peace. It can be a place that we come to that feels, uh, again, it can feel like a home for our integrity. And again, in the text, there are, here, here are a few phrases given for what it is like to follow the ethical precepts. It's like seeing the light of a fire in a dark place to live ethically. It's like a poor man finding a jewel. It's like a prisoner being released. It's like returning home. And these phrases may have resonance. You know, there's, a, there's a sense of that peace, you know, that the uh, peace of a life of integrity, you know, that proverbial being able to look oneself in the mirror <laughs> and to have a sense of yes. And again, there are many challenges to that life of integrity. Um, Again, from the Buddha, not to commit evil, to practice all good, to keep the heart pure. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So you can see that this is, a, um, again, one of those ways that we are called to a, uh, a powerful vision. Again, much as with the vision of love or the vision of uh, maintaining awareness, the vision of living with, with uh, wisdom, this uh, invitation to follow the vision of living with integrity is, is a powerful one. It can be very, very moving. It's partly also about creating safety for uh, ourselves and for others. To live ethically in many ways is to um, create safe communities, to create safe minds, to create safe hearts. Again, there can be more of a peace or a stillness in one's being. And there's this wonderful line that I like a lot from Thomas Merton, the Catholic contemplative, where he says that actually our deep inner being only comes out in conditions of safety or relative safety. We, we often talk about it being safe enough for the, for the inner flowering to happen. That inner flowering requires a certain amount of safety because it's letting down our guard involves vulnerability. And in a way, the ethics that we follow help support that. You know, we know that it seems to be that the deer around Spirit Rock 
act differently than the deer on the opposite side of the valley, I've been told. That they, and that it gets transmitted to their young ones, and they don't seem as scared of humans here. I think that's true. Ethics helps to avoid a lot of the, or to be aware of, a lot of the abuses that even happen in spiritual settings, right? Abuses of power, finances, sexuality, even of uh, harming of people and violence, that those have occurred historically, right? And this commitment to live ethically helps us to um, have safety in that way as well. The precepts can be understood also as a way of training. They, we give guidelines and we use them to check ourselves when we notice, for example, moments of wanting to harm others or ourselves, even in small ways. In a sense, the ethical precepts not to harm, not to take that which is not given, express what the awareness and what the, the, the nature is of a developed being, of an awake, loving, compassionate being. And it's, it's like we, we follow the precepts, partly we fake it till we make it, but partly it calls forth these qualities in us. And so it really is, it really is a training, uh, a training. The precepts in the Indian context were expressed negatively. I've been told by scholars that in that context, when one says not to harm, not to take that which is not given, there, was, uh, there were positive intentions expressed in that context. We hear it more as don't do this, don't do that. But there really is a way in which the precepts most deeply are about developing positive qualities, not just avoiding negative ones, that the first precept about not harming is a training also to develop care and love. The precept not to take that which is not given can develop a sense of interconnection, can have us develop uh, more of a sense of generosity as we look at where I'm tight, where I want, where I have greed, and so forth. The precepts about sexuality uh, can help, the precept about sexuality can help us to develop more of a sense of care, can help us cut through self-centeredness, and again, have more of a sense of interconnection, and so forth. And it's similar with the other precepts. So in a way, we're developing, we're training when we work with the precepts in these qualities of loving-kindness, care, sense of the wisdom of a sense of interconnection, having the wisdom to understand the impact of our actions and so forth. So there are all sorts of ways that this is a training. A little bit more about the first precept. The first precept is not to harm. And I'll read a translation of the actual literal precept. It goes like this, for the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life. And it it often is generalized to mean uh, non-harming. It connects with that principle, many of you know, of ahimsa in the original language, 
which is often used uh, in, the, you know, in the last few centuries in context of developing understandings of what's usually called nonviolence. And uh, again, the, the uh, connotations of a word like nonviolence can be misleading because most deeply it's about developing care and love. And a lot of the people connected with those movements, like Dr. King or Thich Nhat Hanh, have emphasized more the qualities of love. And I know in, uh, in Brazil, when they were translating um, the word ahimsa and words that were often translated negatively, they refused to have an, a negative term for their translation. And so they, I, I'm, I'm forgetting now the exact translation, but it was like something like persistent determination or persistent, passionate determination, you know, was their way of communicating that. So it's bringing up more of the positive as well. Uh, all of the precepts really can be understood, in a way, as expressions of non-harming. So most generally, uh, the first precept really shows us the way. And it, it said, this is again from the Buddha, non-harming is the distinguishing mark of the Dharma. Very strong statement. And then, again, it's, uh, again, at the same time, it means the development of care, of love, of compassion. Even at the time of the Buddha, this was not seen as just involving human beings. It was, it was non-harming in relation to all beings. One must not hate, said the Buddha, any being and cannot kill a living creature even in thought. So it was inviting us to really see those intentions uh, very clearly. Another passage, laying aside violence in respect of all beings, both those which are still and those which move, one should not kill a living creature, nor cause to kill, nor approve of others killing. So we start to see something I'll come back to, the social dimensions start to come in. It's not just about one's face-to-face behavior, but it's also about the larger social context, nor to approve of others killing. You know, and later we'll see that when people like Thich Nhat Hanh interpret the precept, they say, do not kill, do not let others kill. So it actually starts to um, bring some complexity. You know, it's not just about face-to-face behavior. Abandoning the onslaught on breathing beings when abstains from this, without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all beings. You know, so there's there's that sensitivity, there's that ability empathically to be with others. You know, I was thinking reading that, you know, have you ever just contemplated the struggle of a small insect and said, in a way, this being is like me? I'm sure we've all done that, right? We've all, at moments, appreciated that this, this, this being has its own autonomy, its own integrity, right? and wants to live, in a sense, just as much as we do, right? And what is it like to be sensitive on that level, both in terms of our awareness and in terms of our actions? 
the Buddha did move at times, as I mentioned, into the social dimension. He said, let one not kill, nor cause others to destroy life, nor approve of others killing, and so forth. And he did this for all the precepts. He brought in, in a sense, um, a social aspect, nor approve of others. You know, we can interpret what that means. But, as I mentioned, others have wanted to give that more explicit social reading. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. So you start to see that this becomes a challenging precept to follow. He goes on to say, we cannot support any act of killing. No killing can be justified. Again, very strong statement. Right? But not to kill is not enough. We must also learn ways to prevent others from killing. We cannot say, I am not responsible. They did it. My hands are clean. If you were in Germany during the time of the Nazis, you could not say, they did it. I did not. You know. If you did not do, say or do anything to try to stop the killing, you were not practicing the precept. Doesn't that feel challenging? Right. Yeah. And so you can see how practicing the precept can be a, a, a kind of what I was calling a North Star. You know, if, if this, you know, we each have in a way our own ways of practicing. And even at the Buddha's time, there were, uh, among his um, practitioners, there were those who, who were called most deeply to meditation. There were those who might be called most deeply to love. There were those who were called most deeply to ethics. And I've seen that in other communities. I know, I remember talking with a friend in the Vietnamese community. He said, well, yeah, here, here this, is the, this is the nun who really is amazing with meditation. Oh, yeah, there's the one who, that person keeps us ethically, you know, ethically um, aware, right? And so we each, I think, are called in different ways. We each have our kind of pathways to deepen, right? And some of us, it may be, especially through acting ethically, because it can be a deep question. You know, it can be a very deep practice. It's not like, okay, ethics, done that, get on to meditation and go deeply, right? I don't think that's right. All of these can take us very, very deeply in different ways. You know. So that, that's, that's important. Um, you know, it also raises the question you know, of how we might respond to what we've heard about happening in Charleston, right? You know, which I'm sure is on people's minds. It happened, I think, last Wednesday night, right? It was after the class here. And I, I was actually teaching a retreat last week, so heard about it but didn't have time to pay attention to it. I, I just finished the retreat on, on Sunday. You know, and the question is, how do we, you know, how do we respond to that? How do we understand that? You know, there, which really leads me to, to reflect some further on um, asking questions of why, why do we harm each other? Why does harming occur? You know, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a deep question. We can see and we can reflect some 
in relationship to, to what happened in Charleston. I was thinking before doing that, though, I think it's, it's um, helpful maybe just to name those names, you know. Name, you know, often people die and they're, they, we, don't, we don't connect compassionately because we don't often have a sense of these being real people. Their names, maybe they're just statistics, right? There was something very touching that was done after 9-11. All of the people killed in 9-11 had a biography in the New York Times. You know, they were all treated in that way. What would it be like if we did that much more fully? You know, what, would we, what would it be like if we did that with people who die from drones, you know, or, or die not just the good ones on our side, but what if we had that respect for all beings? You know, what would that be like? So I thought it's useful to name these people. They were, you know, they were killed in a place of spiritual practice, right? in Bible study. And if you hear the names, you'll hear that uh, four out of the nine were actually uh, teachers, in a way. They were reverence. So I'll, I'll, na- I'll name these, these nine persons. Reverend Clementa Pinckney, Taiwanza Sanders, Cynthia Hund, Reverend Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Myra Thompson, Ethel Lance, Reverend Daniel Simmons, Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, Susie Jackson. I think you've heard that at some of the uh, gatherings afterwards, some of the memorials, Remarkably, in some ways, uh, some of the family members offered forgiveness. And this is, I'll just read a passage from um, the first person I mentioned, uh, Reverend Clementa Pinckney, who was also a state senator. He said, we know that only love can conquer hate, that only love can bring all together in our name. Irregardless of our faiths, our ethnicities, where we are from, together we come in love. Together we come to bury racism, to bury bigotry, and to resurrect and revive love, compassion, and tenderness. And I was also reflecting on how we understand uh, some of the roots of harming. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about that and then, and then talk about how, how we would practice the first precept you know, in the next week and, and indefinitely. But I was reflecting on this. How do we harm? What causes people to harm another? You know, and the quick response is that people are, you know, this is from the Buddha, is that, that people are caught in greed, hatred, and delusion that those are the forces that take hold of people when they kill. I know there are passages from some of the old texts 
where it said that to harm another when one has wisdom would be like for the left hand to harm the right hand. That it would be, in a way, unthinkable. And maybe we've, you've had those moments where you, it just is like, why is this happening? You know, it feels far maybe from your own consciousness. And we can have that sense at times that, uh, of just the, uh, the care and compassion for all beings or for the people around us. So how does it happen? You know, there's a lot of emphasis on ignorance and delusion being a large part of the reason. You know. And some of this, I think, is developmental. You know, there seems to be a kind of social evolution as well as individual evolution in which we seem to go through uh, a period of feeling very separate before there's more of that development of connection. You know, and so historically there can be a movement from being very identified with one's own tribe or ethnicity to more of a sense which, which starts appearing a few thousand years ago, a sense of universal humanity or even universe, like in the teachings of the Buddha, univer- the universality of sentient beings, right? And a vision of love. And, that, and yet, uh, that's, that, that doesn't, uh, even though we've had Christian uh, empires or Christian states, obviously that's far from being actualized. That's a complicated topic, <laughs> which maybe we can go into later. Um, and you have, uh, you know, you have you have Buddhists who kill in the name of Buddhism, and just like you have Christians who kill in the name of Christianity, right, and so forth. Um, but there seems to be some, you know, the the Buddhist analysis would say there's some form of delusion there, some sense of separateness, some inability to know our depths, to know, you know, the teachings are that when we know ourselves most deeply, there is love, there is wisdom, there is connection. And we've had, I'm sure, each of us moments where we said, this is all there is. John Lennon just came to mind. (laughs) Uh, But we've had those moments, I'm sure. And then it, it can be really puzzling and even disorienting then to look at the world. It's, you know, it's challenging to be on a retreat as I was for six days and come out and read the newspapers, right? How do you bring these together, right? And the tendency has been to see um, greed, hatred, and delusion, and in a way the ignorance is, is the deepest, right? It's, it's not really knowing ourselves. Shanti Deva from the 8th century said, let me see, it just occurred to me, let's see if I can remember this quotation, from the 8th century says, this world is beset with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. From the 8th century, right? There's some kind of deep confusion about our, our true nature. And our, and our practice is very much to keep on touching, get closer to that deep nature of love and wisdom so that it enters more and more into our being and we act more and more from that and as we do that, acting unethically becomes impossible, or at least impossible at key moments. <laughs> you know? 
And so there is that aspect of delusion, and we can certainly see that in, in, you know, in the case of Charleston, right? Certainly the individual, you know, when I looked at the pictures, like, he, he does look extremely young, right? And there's clearly a lot of delusion there. You know, this is, there was, I, I looked at something from, this is, there was actually a manifesto that he wrote, you know, and this is what, these are lines that he wrote. You know, I chose Charleston, this is for the attack, because it is the most historic city in my state and at one time had the highest ratio of blacks to whites in the country. We have no skinheads, no real KKK, no one doing anything but talking on the internet. Well, someone has to have the bravery to take it to the real world, and I guess that has to be me. And, you know, he, he had the sense this would start a race war. Similar to, I think, what Timothy McVeigh had in his mind, right? you know, 20 years ago. And so um, there's a lot of personal delusion there, you know, maybe. And the reports I heard was that this person actually had no friends and a lot of what he did was on the internet. One of the people who may be more and more numerous who don't have the interpersonal connections and live in in that virtual world. And they're, you know, I think the, one of the main um, sort of white supremacist websites called Stormfront, I heard, has 300,000 registered users, right? And so this is, this is there in our, in our uh, society. And there, there was a powerful passage, though, from a, um, a minister who, was, who I heard yesterday on the program Democracy Now! named William Barber, who's a minister. Um, he, might, and he lives in North Carolina. He said, the perpetrator has been arrested, but the killer is still at large, meaning the delusion, the system that makes that possible, right? And that seems like a very wise statement. And we know, and we've looked at sometimes here, the way that race is an incredible delusion, right? No standing scientifically. Constructed, you know, as, we, as many of us know, we looked at this a few months ago, constructed at the end of the eight, um, yeah, 18th century by wealthy people, who we now call whites. Before the end of the 18th century, there were no whites, no blacks. There were people who called themselves English or Christians or people from this land. There were no whites or blacks. The category was constructed quite quickly in Virginia after a rebellion in which people of African background and people of European background got together to protest against unfair, uh, unjust situations in, 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 at their work, right? And after that, there was, they said, they consolidated and had the traditional divide and conquer, created the category of blacks, developed slave laws, made the, you know, made the uh, slavery permanent. It hadn't been. There was much more fluidity, a lot of intermarriage. And all of this happened uh, quite quickly, you know. And so there was this construction of race, you know. And then it was thought in the night, in the later in the uh, uh, 18th century, it was thought to be scientifically set, right? That was, you know, in the 20th century, that has not been accepted by scientists, anthropologists, and so forth. So we have, in a way, this a kind of delusion that still has amazing social power. Right? And we live in that, and people are bound by that. But it actually is a delusion. There's a, 
film some of you may have seen, a documentary called Race, the Power of an Illusion, which is quite good. You can see parts of it on YouTube. And it's, it's pretty amazing. And a lot, of, a lot of what happens with race is in this total web of delusion. You know, I was, there was a book that came out recently about the drug laws. You know where the drug laws came from? They came at the beginning of the 20th century because, you know, at that time, you know, I think there was cocaine and Coca-Cola, <laughs> right. right? And a lot of the drugs were readily available. There weren't many social problems. And some people thought we can't have these be available because African Americans and Chinese people will use them and attack white people, which wasn't happening. But that's where the drug laws came from. Amazing. And they have taken over and we know, you know, we know that they've been used, especially in the last 30 years, to have this mass incarceration primarily of African Americans, right? That has led to what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. We've talked about that. So all of this, it's, can you see it's, it's kind of a web of delusion that creates a reality. Right? And so that's one way of understanding you know, this pattern of harm. You know? And there are many other forms of delusion. If we could look at all the other ways that we harm each other, I think we would find a lot of delusion. And out of that web of delusion comes hatred and comes greed. And you know, we can see in the original formation, for example, of race, wealthy people wanted to have control. They wanted to be able to dominate people. Still a very core dynamic, you know, divide and conquer, very, very strong. That's, you know, that's connected with greed. You know, and out of, that, out of this mix, hatred comes. And so the, uh, the invitation to our practice is to work with all of these elements. It's to work with them. I think, when I think of practicing with the first precept, I think of three main areas of practice. And this is what I want to invite us to do for the next uh, week. And for the rest of your lives, if you so choose. <laughs> very, very good. Um, but uh, because I think it's very important to really be deep students of non-harming. I think we have to know very deeply in ourselves any of our own tendencies to harm. And so I, I, think, I think of the practice in th- having these three aspects what I would call the outer, the, the inner, and the social. Okay? And each of those are important parts of practice. So the outer, when we take the precept, it means tracking our behavior and watching that we, it means at certain key moments saying, I am following the precept to not harm, I won't whatever. I won't say that, I won't step on that ant, I, won't, uh, I will hold back that impulse. You know, that the precepts, conjoined with our mindfulness, give us some space in which we can uh, choose not to act in certain ways. Um, And again, the practice is one of training, not of perfectionism, very important. It's a a training, meaning that we aspire towards non-harming, but when we harm, we notice it We try not to judge ourselves. We try to learn from it and we move on, right? So very important that practicing the precepts isn't holding a standard and then judging ourselves, but it's it's in the spirit of training, which means, of course, 
we will find ourselves coming short of the standard. We will, quote unquote, make mistakes. And that's very, very crucial, right? Because I like to, you know, uh, think uh, of what we're doing here as we are in a learning community. We're not in a perfectionistic community. <laughs> you know, we're in a learning community. We, were free, we learn from each other. We're inspired by each other. We hear each other's stories. I hope that happens some next week, right? We might, oh, here's what happened. I was in this really difficult interaction with someone. I was just about to lose it. And I remembered Wednesday morning, the first precept. Mindfulness came over me. Spaciousness came. And I said, let's take a time out. <laughs> Or something like that, right? This is this is this is what the first precept practice looks like, as it were, you know, uh, on the ground, right? That's what it looks like. It looks like having enough mindfulness so I refrain from this action, you know. And so that could be that. That's one way to talk about the outer aspect of it. It's really using the precept to uh, give us some guidance with our actions and, as much as possible, refraining from actions which harm. The second aspect is what we might call the inner dimension of working with the precept, which is really studying our own minds, looking at noticing what's there. And it can be a little bit embarrassing. I confess, <laughs> uh, when I've looked at my mind, hasn't been recent, but I have noticed at certain times the, the um, wish to kill. It's happened. I've noticed that in my mind. Um, I've re- I remember having those experiences of that wish being there. Not, not so many times, but a few times. And to me that's been quite important to, because it helps me to say I'm not different from someone who has different conditions who has something like that same thought I have, but doesn't have the same context. For me, there wasn't any chance that it would go into action. But there was that thought. I noticed that. Right? And um, I can know that given other conditions, that will get turned into action. And there's not like a fundamental difference between the quality of our beings. And that's that's, that's been important to see, and, and we see that sometimes when we look very deeply. We can see that, whatever it is, aggression, or, you know, and I don't, I'm, I'm a pretty safe guy, so don't, don't get worried. <laughs> and this was, this was a long time ago. <laughs> but but um, noticing that was interesting, right? And. It might be also just to no- notice the moments of aggression, or notice when there's some, maybe we have some very difficult person or some person we're cut off from, maybe at work, a relative or something, and there may well be thoughts of harming, or at least thoughts of that person deserves for something bad to happen, right? And we want to track that. We want to track those, those thoughts, those feelings. That's the second way of practicing. We want to really study. And again, with the mindfulness and that first aspect of what I was calling the outer practice, we can often have enough awareness so we refrain from putting those things into practice. You know, if you're at a difficult meeting, have a running mindfulness log and write on a piece of paper, you know, aggressive thoughts developing, irritation. 
Study greed, hatred, and delusion in your own mind, right? How does it manifest? What occurs? Um, study reactivity especially. What happens, you know, study what uh, leads you, maybe you don't want to harm someone, but what leads you not to care about that person? A little different, a little different shade, right? Typically when there's, when there's some reactivity with another person, or it also could be with ourselves, right? I can wish harm on myself. I can judge myself. We want to study these moments. Typically when there's reactivity towards another or towards myself, and I'm irritated, frustrated, or whatever, I will create, what my mind does, it creates polarization. Empathy goes out the window. Lack of compassion. These, this clearly is the soil out of which harming occurs. We can watch it and study it and hopefully not, certainly not act in gross ways. Maybe we act more in smaller ways, but we study it. You know, and we study this and we have more understanding of where harming comes from. The other aspect of that, of course, is to develop the positive qualities. We can, maybe for the next week, we practice loving kindness every day. Right? We try to um, proactively develop uh, care, compassion, empathy. You know, we've sometimes done empathy practice in this morning. If you remember how to do that, practice empathy, practice compassion, and so forth. So the, this is the inner practice. It's both being mindful of greed, hatred, and delusion, reactivity, noticing how that works, practicing the uh, qualities of care, of compassion, of empathy, empathy, of loving kindness. And then the social dimension. We might see how can I respond. You know, if, we, if, we, if, that, if those words of Thich Nhat Hanh impacted us, how do I take those words, do not kill, do not let others kill? How do I respond to that? How do I do that in my community? You know, whatever, you know, whatever could be the larger social issues. It could be um, some violence that's occurring elsewhere. And I, I think many of us work in that ways. Can the social dimension can operate, we can have that response in many, many different ways, whether it's being with a family where there's been violence or uh, working against domestic violence or, you know, taking some piece of the puzzle, right? Or having something in your own community related to Charleston. Could be all of any or all of these things, right? How do you respond? It could be reading the history so you know more. It could be staying, you know, getting more informed about what the condition, contemporary conditions are. It could be any of those. So I hope that this has helped us see that this is actually a deep, and potentially challenging practice. It can be something for many of us bigger in our lives. It's, and it's something we can do together. So let me just finish by uh, inviting us now to, if you wish, to formally take the ethical precepts. What I'll do is I'll repeat the five in English and I'll just have a pause after each one and in an inner way, I'll invite you to, to um, see what that means for you and make some kind of inner commitment, however that works for you. There are five of them, and I'll read them and then pause. 
Yeah, if you want to have your hands up, this is sometimes done traditionally to acknowledge that in, in a way this is a sacred moment. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life, the precept of non-harming. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept not to take that which is not given. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct or sexual activity which harms myself or others. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to practice wise speech. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to be careful with substances which shift consciousness. Thank you. We have reinforced our ethical practice. <laughs> and my um, suggestion is to uh, follow the first precept in particular. You know, to really give that focus like we've just studied. We have, we have uh, you know, around 10 minutes or so still with time to talk with each other. So if anyone has a uh, question, reflection, story. I'll invite that. Please. Yeah. We'll, let, we'll, wait, we'll wait for the mic. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jamie and I wanted to ask you um, if you could say something more about safety mm. and if is safety also an working towards safety um, a positive way of framing non-harming, mm -hmm. um, and how, yeah. how can we yeah. generate more safety uh, for ourselves and others? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, is cultivating more safety a way of um, practicing non-harming? So I, I would say definitely yes. and. It's something that many of us have talked about some because uh, in a way we, we look for not necessarily absolute safety, but we look for enough safety to be part of a community or to, to practice. Right? And um, there are different ways to support that in a given community. 
And yeah, I think that uh, looking into questions of safety, whether it's at the level of the individual, interpersonally or socially or in a community, is a great way to really focus on and practice um, uh, non-harming. You know, if I have an interpersonal relationship where in some ways there's not safety, to address that would be amazing, right? And again, we want to also, we can also keep studying how often a lack of safety can lead to harming, right? Right, that if I don't feel safe, fear and anxiety will arise. It may tap into my delusion. There clearly in this young man in Charleston, there was a huge amount of fear that we would say a lot of it was quite delusive, right? I think most of us probably would say that. And yet it was there, and, and no, one, no one caught it, right? Probably even his parents. Right? They seemed, you know, from the reports I heard, he had just had the thoughts he was having in the last two or three years. They weren't the thoughts that he had had necessarily. There was the background, of course, maybe in South Carolina, but there, was, there weren't the, the, the same kind of thoughts he was having. So something, some mix of fear, anxiety, maybe not feeling safe in certain ways, along with delusion, it was part of the background there. And so, yeah, for us to try to create more safety, you know, which partly means knowing where there might not be a sense of safety. It could be, uh, you know, I, I'm, I also uh, teach a fair amount at the East Bay Meditation Center, which, uh, which is, um, uh, has a pretty high degree of diversity of ethnicity. And there, there are, on the wall, there are a number of communication agreements that help to create more safety in that context. That would be an example, right? Or I, I can think also when I've, when I've worked in, uh, when I work in small groups, right? Uh, we often have explicit guidelines that help create more safety. That can be very helpful in a group, in a workplace, you know, to, uh, you know, so, so that's maybe it means that certain kinds of language are not acceptable, right? Uh, uh, you know, I know in one workplace I was part of, uh, we were, there, were, there were communication issues, shall we say, and I was part of a communication committee, and the communication committee heard the guidelines for wise speech and said, oh, these are great. And so at, uh, we... Uh, suggested them for the whole organization. And then at, at, other, at, fu- uh, at future meetings, I was asked at the beginning of the meetings to give the guidelines for wise speech, to, to speak, okay, just speak to be truthfully, in a helpful way, uh, with, with a sense of care and love, and to have good timing and so forth. And, and you know, some of the people who were widely regarded as the not the most skillful speakers would sometimes begin, they would, they would be, there was no other way. We had these posted and they would stare at these guidelines. <laughs> and they would say, I'm not sure this is following the guidelines. Bye. But, <laughs> right? So, so uh, in a lot of groups, one way to have that, increase that safety is to have guidelines. You know, and sometimes in, when I work with groups in that way, 
I might ask the group, people in the group, to gather together in groups of two or three and say, what kind of conditions were not conducive for safety and trust and what kind of conditions were? And then we would bring forth the guidelines out of that discussion. So, and, and of course, one can bring that to uh, community or to the larger society. So I think it's a nice way to, to frame the, uh, the practice of non-harming yeah, in a more positive way. Thanks. Yeah. When I first heard the precepts and it said not to kill, I yeah. thought, that's a slam dunk. I'm not ever going to kill anybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but then I began to interpret it more broadly in the sense of not harming. Yeah. And I was glad to hear in the quotes you were giving that it got down to mineral. Because for me, one yeah. of the most challenging aspects of non-harming now is the harm we're doing to the planet right. through climate change and all the other human activities. Yeah. And I understand that although I may try to do the minimum of harm to the planet, I have to broaden that interpretation to mean not allowing others to harm right. the planet as well, which draws you out into the social sphere, right. into social yeah. activism. And that's really challenging. That's challenging, yeah. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's no you know, there's no clear perfect behavior or no clear perfect response for for all these different kinds of harming, right? We have to, you know, there are some people who say, well, I won't drive a car, or, you know, there, there actually are some Dharma teachers who say, I won't fly in a plane. I want to minimize my karma footprint, you know, and I don't, I, I take planes, you know, and, and I think, so in a way, we're all recognizing that we do harm. And, and what is, what kind of strategy can I have to minimize the harm? Or uh, I think mostly by looking really carefully at these different dimensions, we, that can help us, right? But it, it's important to say that I can't be perfect, right? You know, I could. Some people would choose to get totally off the grid, and maybe they have a certain amount of personal purity, but they might not be really responding to the larger issues so well, right? So it's it's challenging to know what to do. Yeah. And there are a lot of uh, good responses. <laughs> it's not to say, oh, it's challenging. Oh, forget that one. <laughs> yeah. Challenges are good. It brings forth uh, creativity. And I think the main thing is just to stay in the practice and keep looking at it. Yeah. Please, we have one. Yeah. Hi, I'm Margaret Nolan. Can you hear me? Um, thank you, Donald. You know, you're just incredible. You really are. And... I just can't thank you enough because I really need to be here every Wednesday. I hope I can do it. Um, my, we spoke to so many things, but the the issue of doing no harm, for me. Um, the issue of. The issue of doing no harm. Oh yeah. <coughs> doing no harm. Maybe a little closer. Your in terms yeah. of not yeah. killing. Now yeah. you can kill the spirit. You know you don't have to kill uh, the body, but uh, the spirit can, in fact, you know people's. Um, way they behave uh, can produce something in you, I'll say in me, mm -hmm. it has happened, um, and, and 
what I'm uh, struggling with is in a, a living community where you have so many uh, diverse people who have so many problems, so physical problems, financial problems, and mental problems. And um, I happen to live in subsidized housing, and that brings with it a whole series of, of challenges. I'm not choosing to live mm -hmm. there. I don't have the money, the income to mm -hmm. live anywhere I want. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. But at the same time, I'm living in a very um, uh, difficult mm -hmm. circumstances. So the thing that occurred to me was uh, that when someone misunderstands something you've done to create safety for for that person and for the community, and then they turn it against you mm. and, and say something about you. Um, the practice of doing no harm for me was to do nothing, mm. to say nothing, mm -hmm. to stay quiet. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that to be, and find it to be, extremely difficult. Yeah. So that's my practice right now. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, in some moments, in some circumstances, it can be wise to do nothing. Not easy. You know, uh, but the mind is yeah. In in other moments, uh, in other moments, it can be very wise to, and one can develop the skills to do something in challenging moments. I think, for example, a lot of what we're talking about, there are a whole series of skills we can develop. For example, how do I, how do I, how can I be skillful in my practice when there are conflicts? For example. It's something I've been very interested in for a long time. And there are a lot of capacities which one can develop to be more skillful in communication, in working with conflict, and being okay, sometimes even with aggression coming at you, not take it personally, you know, like people train in the martial arts like this, you know, some of the martial arts I know. I remember uh, there was, I saw, once saw a Zen teacher who got a really aggressive question coming at him, and he was like this, he just went, <laughs> you know, like using his hands to suggest, okay, I'm not going to let that energy go in, right? And so there's, there are whole art forms, but sometimes it's to, you know, sometimes it's to do nothing is very, very skillful, right? Yeah, and then there are also, um, you know, as we, as we get better at this and study harming and not harming and develop, you know, the, these different repertoire of skills, maybe in uh, communication and in conflict, then, then something which uh, may, you know, I'm not sure of the situation exactly you're talking about, that, but there, there may be ways that, um, uh, I'll just say for me, at certain points, some situations where initially it was wiser to say nothing, later I could actually be able to respond, yeah, and, and have that be more skillful. So, um, okay, ready for, thank you, thank you so much for, for the question. Ready for uh, a week of looking into this more? Okay, how many would like to take on the practice of the first precept for the next week? Okay, um, okay, so we'll just finish. I'll invite you to reflect on what may be there for you in terms of what was helpful or what, what learning was there. And then let that move uh, to your intentions going forth for the next week.
And one support for our practice could be just uh, reflecting each morning, or maybe once or twice or three times a day, just for a minute. Let me remember the intention of non-harming, just so we uh, keep reminding ourselves. I think if we remind ourselves a few times, it will really uh, be a great support. So we finish uh, with the dedication of merit, knowing that we do this practice for ourselves. We do that for each other. We do it for the people in our lives. And ultimately, we do it for all beings, which circles back to us because we are part of all beings. So may this be a benefit to all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.